Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 32 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to retired FBI agent Brig Barker. Now, Brig served in the FBI for 20 years and as a combat veteran and as a highly respected linguist with full fluency in Arabic and a professional working proficiency in German, during his bureau career, Brig was frequently deployed overseas to work on major counterterrorism matters. From 1998 until his recent retirement, Brig was assigned to operational investigations in Nairobi, Kenya, Kampala, Uganda, Cairo, Egypt, London, England, Freetown, Sierra Leone, and Tunis, Tunisia, to name a few. During his deployment to Sierra Leone, he was tasked with officially opening the FBI attache office there and establishing liaison with local leaders and diamond merchants to initiate the investigation into allegations that profits from the sale of blood diamonds were being funneled to terrorist organizations due to the gym's high value and portability. Now, as you all know, I'm a big crime fiction and thriller reader. And the entire time I am talking to Brig, and get that name, Brig Barker. It sounds like a character in a thriller book. But the entire time I'm talking to him, I'm thinking in my mind, wow, this is just like a James Patterson novel. Or he could be one of Lee Child's characters in one of his books with Jack Reacher. During his career, Brig was dropped solo in countries and asked to establish a presence for the FBI in that country. For those of you who uh, love to write crime fiction and thrillers, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of great ideas uh, while listening to this interview. And that's a great segue into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. I was fortunate enough to be interviewed for a Business Insider article titled 11 Things Hollywood Gets Wrong About Being an FBI Agent and One Thing It Gets Right. That came out this week on businessinsider.com. The writer not only spoke to me, but she also spoke to retired agent Joan Navarro, author of What Everybody Is Saying, and Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. Uh, She was very kind enough to mention my upcoming novel, Pay to Play, as you all know, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry, which is being released on September 20th. The article was all about the fictional depictions of FBI agents and, you know, what's wrong and what's right. It's very interesting. I've posted a link to the article on my uh Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author. It's also on Twitter, uh, Jerry Williams One. And uh, I will put a link to it on my website under the News and Events tab. It is a, a pretty long article that really names some misconceptions about FBI agents and the FBI. And I think you'll enjoy it. One thing I know you'll enjoy is this interview. So let's get on with it. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce my guest today, Brig Barker. Hi, Brig. Hi, how are you, Jerry? I'm doing great. You know, I was introduced to you through my buddy, Jim Weddick, over at FBIRetired.com. 
And uh, when I looked at your bio, at your resume, I was very impressed. And I thought, we got to get this guy on the show because your career was packed with working counterintelligence and you took it to a whole different level. But before we even get into that, tell me about, you know, when you joined the FBI and why you wanted to be a, a special agent. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody has a very unique story. I grew up in, uh, in Southern California out in the desert and ended up, um, uh, heading off to college and, from college, I, I, I was a Army ROTC uh, recipient, so ended up getting commissioned into the Army and spent five years as an Army officer. And towards the end of that time, I was—I uh, didn't necessarily want to spend 20 years in, in the military. I'd been deployed a lot during that five years. I loved my experience. I lived in Italy for three years. She was complaining. But uh, I was looking for something very interesting where uh, I wasn't going to be deployed as much. And so my mother, in fact, sent me, uh, cut out a little article out of uh, a magazine, as moms do, that said the FBI was uh, essentially hiring uh, special agents. So I looked at that and I began the process and, and, and headed down that road. And so I entered into the FBI in 1995. When you joined then, did you have any language skills? Well, I, my five years in the Army, uh, again, was, was unique. It was a great feeder into where I ended up in the FBI. I, again, uh, I was, uh, I spent about three years in the 82nd Airborne, but stationed overseas. And at the end of my tour, we went down and, uh, we were deployed down to Northern Iraq. And so I spent a couple months in Northern Iraq and, uh, really kind of got the bug for, uh, the Middle East and uh, the Arabic language. Uh, that was my first experience. And so I think that that seed was planted in me at that point, which which I think kind of, uh, you know, grew as time went on. The other uh, really backdrop piece is that as I was growing up, my dad, who had retired from the military, ended up being a defense contractor, and he was actually uh, stationed in Saudi Arabia. And he used to talk about uh, Saudi Arabia when I was a kid, and it was very fascinating to me. So I think a couple of those things worked together, as, and there was really kind of this uh, confluence of interest in, in Middle East, and which would eventually become terrorism. Now, I, did, uh, I didn't have any language skills necessarily uh, before. You didn't pick up any uh, Italian when you were in Italy? <laughs> I, you know, I was, my excuse is that I was deployed so much I did not. But I did. Okay. I did because I thought that's what you were going to say that you picked up a little uh, Italian. I did pick up German. Now explain the logic to that, right? It's difficult, but I did kind of get fascinated with German because I was in northern Italy and they essentially spoke German there. So I I became very interested in German and, and started self teaching myself German. So I actually came in the FBI as a a, a German speaker. Okay, that's interesting. I'm also a military brat, so lived three years in Germany, and, and I lived a year in Switzerland, uh, in Fribourg, uh, Switzerland, but I didn't pick up any German. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I took Spanish in high school. I just wasn't that interested. I probably didn't do very well, but I think a lot of times it goes to what are you interested in, and you kind of throw yourself into it. So I think that that's what happened to me with, with the German. And uh, again, as we get into our conversation, you know, we'll learn more about your Arabic language skills because I would think that that was 
something highly useful, not just to, to you on your deployments, but of course to the Bureau. I'm sure there's not a lot of special agents who have a fluency in Arabic. Yeah, I think, again, there was a seed planted in me with the Arabic. And I remember early on in my marriage, uh, we were, uh, my wife and I were driving, and this was after I got out of the army, army, and I said, you know, I really want to learn this language. And we stopped and purchased a cassette tape on beginning Arabic. So that should take us back a few years right there. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so that, uh, you know, that I think that it was there. Uh, I just uh, essentially um, started seeking out schools within the FBI, and I can tell you more about that if you're interested. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. You become a special agent. Uh, you're, you go to the academy. What's your first office of assignment, and, and what were you working there? Well, Jerry, I got my 53rd choice for field offices, <laughs> which was Los Angeles uh, out of 56, um, because I was essentially uh, coming out of California and I was looking for a new adventure, but I got Los Angeles and uh, went right into violent crime. So I, I was working uh, bank robberies, fugitives, kidnappings, things like that. Uh, when I got to Los Angeles, we had back then, mid-90s, we had about 1,200 bank robberies a year in the, the L.A. basin, which was great for a new agent to learn how court worked. Uh, basic interviewing skills and all those kind of things. So that was my 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 first office. Okay. How long did you stay there, and where did you go next? I was only there a few years, and then uh, I actually uh, transferred up to Northern California to the Sacramento office. And oh, I was in Sacramento. That's how I know uh, Jim Weddick. Okay, so you know it's uh, concentric circles always connect eventually, right? So. I, yeah. I, yeah, I was in Sacramento uh, for uh, almost 10 years. I uh, helped open up an RA, a small office in Northern California as part of the Sacramento office. And then when 9-11 happened, uh, 2001, because I had a score in Arabic, uh, I was transferred to counterterrorism actually that day. All right. Just tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Arabic school and where you uh, gained your fluency, because from what you just said, you had that fluency before 9-11. Well, I, you know, in the academy, we took a, a, a test called the D-Lab, and the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, where essentially they play a made-up language and then you have to translate it. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I did fairly well in that. And uh, so eventually what happened is in 1998, I deployed over to Kenya as part of the 98 embassy bombings investigation. And I came back from that just with this real deep desire to work counterterrorism. And as part of that, you know, bolted right on was I want to learn this language because I want to be able to interview people in Arabic. I want to understand the nuances of the language and things like that. So that started me down the road of, of and eventually going to six different Arabic schools um, starting out with modern standard Arabic, and then my final school was uh, in uh, Syrian dialect. So that, you know, that and that took place, I would say, probably over a period of about uh, eight years or so. All right. And again, I'm taking a peek uh, at your resume, and I see that you were deployed to Nairobi, Kenya, Kambala, Uganda, and a number of other places before 9-11. Why don't we just touch on the work that you did uh, overseas in Africa before 9-11? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, 1998 was really the kind of the beginning of it all for I, the way I see it, the FBI, as far as counterterrorism overseas. Uh, it really what happened is, uh, you know, Al Qaeda at the direction or fatwa of Osama bin Laden uh, carried out an attack on two different embassies, one in Nairobi, Kenya, one in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, within minutes and killed hundreds and, and injured over 5000. So. Uh, the U.S. government was going to send in the Marines to take control of the situation, and there was a decision to not do that, but to send in FBI investigators. So I was involved in one of the early deployments over there. Uh, I actually was on a team we, we went into. We landed in Nairobi, and they immediately needed uh, less than 10 folks to head over to Kampala, Uganda, because there was a threat against the embassy there which was, you know, kind of seen as a follow-on to the other attacks. So I went over there initially to Kampala and worked that case. It was in the newspapers. Um, and once we got there, I went back to Kenya and, and worked on the case. And, and we were there for, I'd say, about a month or so. We were working out of a hotel room, and uh, we were trying to figure out best practices with that. But, again, that was really kind of the beginning for me and also just gave me that, that strong interest in, in working this for the rest of my career. Well, which is really kind of ironic because you were saying that the reason that you joined the FBI after uh, the Army was because you were tired of the deployments. You wanted someplace where you were kind of based. So what happened? Yeah, I, I don't think we need to bring that up with my wife. But, uh, <laughs> yes, that was, the goal was to not have the deployments but uh, ended up uh, just, a, a, you know, a desire to – uh, work counterterrorism, but really to me, it was also continued service to our country. And, um, we need people in these austere places and we need people to go on to have, you know, Arabic skills and things like that. So to me, there was this just, uh, you know, compulsion to, to go whenever I could and to serve in whatever way I could. So yes, that continued on until actually almost my retirement date, but it was a great experience. You know, there was ups and downs, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for sure. Let's touch on a little bit about where you were and what uh, assignment you had after 9-11. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about something that's very fascinating to me, and that's the work that you did with Blood Diamonds. But first, talk about 9-11. Where were you and what was your immediate assignment related to that? Sure. And I think everyone can remember that day, uh, you know, and that was uh, such a historical day. I... Uh, I was working criminal cases as of that day. Basically, uh, someone looked up in the system and saw that I had an Arabic uh, language uh, test in the system, a score, and so I was immediately transferred to counterterrorism. Uh, so that was in Sacramento. I was in Sacramento. Yeah. So that. So I'd never. I went back. I think two years later to my small office to gather my things, but I was, you know, knee deep in the the counterterrorism, the nine eleven case uh, from the outset. But the so other you were working. You you did mention that in nineteen ninety eight you did uh, a deployment. So you weren't working counterterrorism before nine eleven. I was not. I was working criminal cases uh, up until that point. And actually, for the 1998 deployment, we went initially as SWAT operators as part of FBI SWAT. Oh, and okay. uh, so that was that was what uh, that was kind of the impetus for us going over there. So and then getting involved in the case it took me to a different part. And I just said, I want to work this, you know, for the rest of my career. 
Okay. So that's uh, almost like some of the other agents that may have gone over uh, for the embassy bombings that were an ERT. They may have worked corruption, but they were on the ERT, and so they went over to the embassy. That's kind of what you did when going over there as, as a member of SWAT. Exactly. That's exactly Okay. Right. All right. I get it now. But the twist was um, shortly after 9-11, I got a page, if you remember the pagers, and uh, they, they asked me to go to Cairo, Egypt, as part of the 9-11 case. Uh, of course, one of the, the main muscle hijackers, Mohammed Atta, was the only hijacker from Egypt. So so I, I think I got a call, uh, page on a Friday, Sunday, uh, I was in Cairo. And uh, so I was over there for a couple months uh, working on the case there, uh, assisting the legal attache office on the 9-11 case. Okay, and this was immediately after the attacks? Yeah, it was sometime. I can't remember exact dates, um, but I remember uh, thinking, uh, actually, okay, I'm going to be leaving to the Middle East during the chaos in our country, leaving my family behind. So there were, you know, there were considerations, but at the same time, you know, I think they were partly looking for Arabic speakers to go up, uh, go over there and, and work on this. So that's why I headed over there. Well, as much as you can tell us, um, what did you actually do over there? Well, there was, you know, there's a lot going on uh, after 9-11. Things have changed uh, tremendously. Um, of course, as you know, uh, every agent was in, in in some capacity. You know, you, you touched the 9-11 investigation somehow. Over there, uh, it was uh, it was very interesting. I work with some great folks who I'm still friends with today. Um, but we were meeting uh, with the national police, the intelligence apparatus over there, working with the different governmental agencies within the embassy, all focused on uh, not only the 9-11 attack, but anything else that might be coming up. So I was out regularly meeting with host government and, you know, we were, uh, you know, passing, you know, letters as far as traces on individuals, trying to get background on individuals and things like that. Uh, and there was a lot of liaison. You know, we were uh, strengthening the relationship with the Egyptians and uh, they were certainly great partners. There was a lot of different factors that were playing into it. Uh, we were very busy. Uh, when I got there, the office was working till about three in the morning every every night uh, on the case. So it was it was exciting. Uh, you know, it was it was tiring, um, but uh, it was it was very fulfilling. And how long did you stay there? I was there uh, probably 60 or so days. Now, tell me more about uh, Tunisia. You know, how did that happen? Yeah, so there, so a couple other deployments I did, and uh, you mentioned Blood Diamonds. That, that was uh, something I worked down in Sierra Leone in West Africa. Yeah, that was Tunisia was my last deployment, and I think it was 2014. And I can I can talk about either one of those, whatever you. Now let's talk about Sierra Leone because you know you you hear the term Blood Diamonds, and there's just so much intrigue that comes along with that. Could you explain, uh, I, I've had a, an opportunity to, to do some reading up on this, but if you could explain to the listeners the term blood diamonds, why they're called that. For sure. Yeah, blood diamond, or uh, as they call it, to conflict diamonds. Uh, it, it, I know it's, it's you know, kind of risen up into movies and books and things like that, but essentially it's, it's a raw diamond that is essentially mined in a conflict area uh, or a combat zone that finds its way into uh, proceeds at the insurgency level or a terrorist group. So essentially, uh, a terrorist group or an insurgency will uh, use will essentially 
you know, gain the proceeds of the profits of the blood diamonds and use those to buy weapons, explosives, things like that. So by definition, it's it's mined in a conflict area and it finds its way and its profits to an insurgency or terrorist group. And the reason that diamonds are used instead of any type of currency, um, could you explain that? Yeah, it's um, uh, not well regulated, at least back then, uh, at least during the, the, the situation in West Africa and Sierra Leone in, in particular. Uh, 2003 was the beginning of the Kimberley process where they started more of a certification process uh, where diamonds could not be uh, mined in conflict areas or rebel areas. There were certain you know um, ways that they had to be transported and things like that. But before the Kimberley process, uh, it was very unregulated and, uh, you know, it was uh, really something that insurgents got their hands on quickly and knew that uh, uh, they could sell those off for weapons or whatever they needed. So it was, a, it was a very important commodity in the black market. So what was your role in Sierra Leone when it came to uh, looking into the exchange of black diamonds? What was it that you were trying to do or trying to prevent? Yeah, and if I can't just give, I'll give a quick history uh, on on the situation there. Of course, Sierra Leone uh, was a war-torn country. They had a civil war from 1991 to 2002. Um, there was a group called the Revolutionary United Front, or the RUF, that took over the government. Uh, they worked with Charles Taylor, who was the president of Liberia at the time, uh, and essentially, the government of Sierra Leone uh, really, they were absolutely ineffective against the RUF. So the RUF started gaining uh, control of the diamond mines in Sierra Leone. There was a roller coaster and different machinations within Sierra Leone as far as someone uh, running the government, coups, things like that. Uh, they tried to get a uh, South African uh, military group to come in and solve it. But in the end, uh, after the U.N. somewhat failed there, the British came in. And in 2002, they declared that the war was over. So that's a little bit of the backdrop. I think it's critical uh, and just to add to, you know, kind of the atmospherics is when I got there, I worked out of a building that was full of bullet holes and things like that. But the British came in and, and really brought an end to the war there. But the, after the war, after 2002, the, the, the diamond revenues went up about tenfold. I think it was about $130 million worth of diamonds were, were flowing out of Sierra Leone, and about half of them were unlicensed. So you have these raw diamonds that uh, the RUF and Charles Taylor and others were using as either commodity or to sell for proceeds to insurgent groups. And so um, that... So basically, they didn't care who they were selling it to even though they knew that these insurgent groups were using it to to finance terrorism. Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, kind of a failed state atmosphere at the time. And so, you know, money spoke and that was what was critical to the blood diamond. So it was uh, if you could get if you could find a, a raw stone, it was was worth it and it was unregulated then that could be used to to broker whatever you were trying to get. So that that was kind of the backdrop. Uh, of the situation at the time. What was your role? So how long were you there? I was just there a little over a month. And essentially my mandate, I, because I had I'd been over to Kenya and, and worked on the, that case in 98 and then Cairo, to the, you know, after 9-11 um, and had some Arabic skills, um, I was called by the headquarters unit that, that ran Africa to go in and do two things. Number one, 
open up an office, and number two, look into the Blood Diamond situation. There was a lot of allegations. It all stemmed from a Washington Post article by a guy named Douglas Farah, and essentially he went over to Sierra Leone, and he had you know information that uh, three al-Qaeda operatives were siphoning profits out of the Blood Diamond industry in Sierra Leone. He showed photos of those three al-Qaeda operatives to some of the RUF commanders, and allegedly they said, yes, we know them, we're involved with them, there's a connection. So he essentially stated in his article that he established a connection between the RUF, the blood diamond industry, and al-Qaeda. So a congressman uh, read this article, thought it was worth looking into, talked to the ambassador in country in Sierra Leone, and then we had an invite and official authority to open up an FBI office in Sierra Leone. I got a call and I went in to, to start up this project. Now, I think one thing that we need to make sure everyone understands is that the RUF, from what I've read, was a very, very violent group. Um, aren't they the ones that were in, in any type of conflict would hack off arms and legs and limbs? Yeah, I think it's a good point. The RUF was just a very violent group. I mean, they, you know, just giving you atmospherics when I was on the ground there, you know, almost half the country is amputated in wheelchairs, uh, just a very austere situation. You're talking about Sierra Leone, which at the time was the second lowest uh, country on the human index factor in the world to start out with. But then you just had uh, no infrastructure as far as medical assistance and things like that, hospitals. But the RUF, yes, they, uh, you know, they would say short sleeves or long sleeves with their machete. And you had to pay if you if you essentially voted for the wrong wrong person. So, yeah. And, and again, the movie, you know, certainly uh, if you watch that, it gives, I think, a lot of reality to what what they were facing during their civil war. And so, you know, that as you are you know, assigned to open up an office. So, you know, what what are you thinking as you're going in, knowing that this is the type of atmosphere that you're walking into? Yeah, I was um, I was excited because, uh, again, I, I have this, uh, you know, interest in more austere locations. Um, you know, I, I did a tour in London. I, I thought Sierra Leone was a lot more interesting. But going in there, I had some, some background. Uh, I did spend about a week in Washington, D.C. before I went over getting some briefings and things like that. But I don't think I knew exactly what I was getting into. The lay of the land there was um, just uh, uh, primitive. Um, and, and, you know, everywhere that I've been in Africa and the Middle East, there's always a decent hotel to, to kind of base out of. I couldn't find that in Sierra Leone. I was in Freetown, the capital, for most of my time. And uh, even So where did you stay? Uh, well, I stayed in, uh, they were hotels, but, um, you know, it was, sometimes it was more of just like a couple rooms run by, you know, that, that was owned, that were owned by somebody. So, um, I did end up in their better hotel in Freetown towards the end, but again, nothing compared to what we're used to, uh, when we travel out to, uh, on some of these deployments. So you were there for the, for the month and you, you opened up this office and what is that, uh, entail uh, getting to know the uh, officials and did you have contact with members of the RUF? Yeah. So when I went in, the one thing I knew I needed to do from past experience, as we all know, is uh, developing relationships. I needed to develop relationships within the embassy with government agencies, but I also needed to develop relationships with the police, the national police, the intelligence folks, 
But more importantly, I needed to establish relationships with diamond brokers. And so uh, as I went in there, I knew that that I had a, a little bit of a, a mountain of a curve to, to climb up and over to, to get to that point. And I did have that at one point. Uh, I Through some contacts, I, I started getting introduced to the diamond brokers. And what's interesting and, and, and you know, why send someone with Arabic speaking skills into Sierra Leone, the Lebanese essentially own West Africa. They own all the restaurants, the hotels. And I, I was going to ask you that question, why, you know, Arabic speaker needed to be in Sierra Leone. Yes, and it's a great question, but I most of my contacts were with, uh, with Lebanese. And so uh, it worked out great. Uh, I had never been there before, but I kind of understood the Arab culture and we could communicate. And so uh, I ended up developing relationships with the brokers, um, interviewing folks and, and pushing forward, trying to really gain discernment on these allegations uh, of the, the proceeds going to number one, Al-Qaeda, but also to Hezbollah. That was the other allegation. And you can read about that in some of the news articles. Yeah, I'll make sure that I put a link to the Washington Post article that you mentioned and also the Time Magazine article on Blood Diamonds that I found. I'll put a link to those on uh, on the show notes for this episode at jerrywilliams.com. But this is uh it's 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 really fascinating to me about, you know, how you're able to go from cushy United States into these different um areas where you are building up the FBI infrastructure. I mean, you, you are creating these offices and, and the contacts. Where do you think you got that skill from? Well, I think the only skills I have are what I've learned from other people and, you know, mistakes that I've made along the way. I think starting back in, you know, living overseas for three years, but, you know, my, I think my first experience in Iraq showed me a little bit about, uh, and that was an experience where we had to integrate with the Kurdish guerrillas. And so I think that was, you know, again, one of my first experiences learning about different cultures, which I've always been fascinated with, but also how do we work with them, leverage them to all, you know, move towards this, the, the same objective. So I think through the years, you know, I, I think I, I kept taking that in and, and learning a little bit here and there. But again, Sierra Leone was 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 even different. You talk about the the, the Kush you know, of the United States, I remember flying into Lungi Island, which is off the coast of Sierra Leone. And uh, once you land there, you either have to take a Russian helicopter uh, into the mainland or a hydrofoil. And I remember talking to somebody on the ground and they said, well, the last couple Russian helicopters have gone down and everybody died. And so I said, I think I'm going to take the hydrofoil on this one. But I remember taking that hydrofoil, which was like a rubber Zodiac boat, essentially, uh, and, and we landed on the beach and I got out and, I, and it was kind of like, OK, let's figure this out. Now, I'm answered to folks at headquarters um, and just really, you know, kind of had to do, you know, planning right on the spot and figure out what am I going to do each day? Who am I going to contact and things like that? So I think it just kind of comes from years of uh, spending time on the ground in these different places. Have you ever I guess you, you keep talking about being in, in, in these uh, volatile environments have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself oh my god uh i'm in trouble here you know one of those moments where you're you're thinking that you know this may be it for you i would imagine that that's happened a number of times 
Yeah, and I think um, I always look at traveling as kind of color-coded, green, yellow, red, and green is nothing will ever happen to me, right? Red is there's a terrace around every corner, but I always try to stay in yellow, situational awareness and, you know, just being aware of my surroundings, what district am I in, what street am I on. But I have had, you know, some interesting experiences one time uh, in Africa where I turned a corner and uh, uh, one of my colleagues, an FBI agent, uh, was in a vehicle that got hit by a, a Matato bus and knocked him out. And the crowds were gathering. Uh, and uh, essentially, myself and another agent rolled up on that and really tried to take control of the scene. Uh, but they took his gun. They took his radio. And uh, it was all out chaos. And there was just two of us. Uh, you know, trying to, you know, try to figure out where we are, what's going on. And that was one of those where we were wondering, are we going to get dragged off and, you know, what's next for us? But, you know, I think you have a couple of those instances. You do everything you can to equip yourself going into them as much training as you can uh, and then try to make, you know, logical decisions along the way. Now, what was your very last assignment? Well, I uh, my last overseas assignment was in Tunisia, North Africa. And um, uh, that was another interesting experience. Uh, we're trying to open an office there, which was really uh, my role there when I was there. Um, and again, it was going in, building relationships. But the challenge in Tunisia uh, just a couple of years ago and still is, is that uh, they're the highest per capita foreign fighter volume for any country in the world. So they send more people into to Syria and Iraq to fight with ISIS and have returning foreign fighters in any country per capita. So oh, really, why is that? That that seems odd. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I don't know the exact reasoning. I know, you know, Tunisia was the beginning of the Arab Spring and uh, there are definitely a lot of radical followers there. And uh, sometimes these smaller countries want to make a name for themselves, uh, like some of the Gulf countries. But, you know, that may have been part of it. But um, when I was there, we were I was working again. I was by myself working with the Tunisian government, essentially trying to help them establish uh, counterterrorism legislation to prosecute these folks that were coming back and uh, developing a counterterrorism fusion center for use by the, the interministerial uh, entities within the Tunisian government. And that's in North Africa. Yeah, that's in North Africa up there by Algeria and uh, uh, Libya. I think um, I did a podcast interview with John Cosenza, and now that I recall, he talked about a Tunisian group being a cell in Italy uh, during the time that he was there. I, I'm not surprised, given the proximity of Tunisia to Europe, uh, that certainly could be the case. And, you know, Tunisia, you essentially have, you know, Arab people living on the continent of Africa and, and so close to Europe that you kind of have this uh, convergence of all the different cultures, but a lot of travel up into Spain and Italy and Germany from there. All right. So um, that was your last overseas assignment. Did you work all of these assignments out of Sacramento or headquarters? Where were you actually based? Yeah. So I moved around. Uh, so after Los Angeles and Sacramento, I went and taught at the uh, FBI Academy for a couple of years teaching interrogation, mostly counterterrorism interrogation. From there, I went out to a field office and was a Joint Terrorism Task Force supervisor for a couple of years. And then after that, I, I was embedded with Special Operations Command with the military as the FBI senior advisor down in Tampa at the SOCOM command 
did that a couple of years and then I finished off on the West Coast back running another Joint Terrorism Task Force. All right. So tell me a little bit about when you retired and why you retired. I mean, you've got all of these skills. I hope that, uh, you know, you didn't leave the bureau and then, you know, decide to uh, become a scuba instructor or something. Have you been able to use these uh, these uh, unbelievable counterterrorism skills and education that you have and language abilities in your retirement? Well, I'm heading that way. Along the way, amongst the travel and working cases, I've been teaching uh, uh, law enforcement and, you know, CIA and different entities on, you know, again, how to build networks uh, on the ideology behind uh, terrorists uh, on Arabic and things like that. So I've been doing that uh, since 9-11, just as a labor of love, and I'm looking to continue to do that. So I've opened up a company, and uh, so I'm looking to continue to educate police and other entities, civilian groups, and things like that on, you know, flags and indicators, pre-attack, what to look for as a concerned citizen, all those things. Again, just as, you know, our country's in the situation that we're in, uh, we're seeing an increased operational tempo by ISIS and their followers. So again, I'm just kind of seeking to continue to serve. Now, you you recently retired then, is that correct? I did. I recently retired uh, this year. Okay. All right. So how does it feel? I mean, have you been able to take advantage of being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it? I'm starting to, yeah, feel the change a little bit. I think after 20 or so years, you know, you you feel like I'm going to do this until I die. But um, I really haven't looked back. I I kind of felt like um, I sprinted for 20 or so years and, and got, you know, got to do a lot of amazing things. I felt very blessed that way. But when I left, you know, I just I just once I hit that point, I said, I'm ready to move on and do some new things. So I really haven't looked back. And I kind of did that with the Army, too. I had a lot of great, you know, exciting you know, times in the Army, but I was ready to move on to the next uh, you know, phase of my life. So now I'm looking forward to some flexibility and um, working, you know, this company and doing whatever I can to educate folks on what we have going on around the world. Well, I know you've done a lot of writing uh, is writing a book. Uh, part of your plans for the future, maybe? I think if I was not ADHD, I think it would be for sure. I'd, I'd really like to do that. Um, I have this, uh, you know, kind of uh, inner author part of me, academic, and I, I really uh, started writing articles when I was uh, completing my master's degree. But I really enjoy it, and I didn't know that until, you know, later in my career. But, uh, yeah, I really uh, I like writing and making it uh, very practical, again, for people to better understand what is ISIS? You know, what should I be looking for? How do we counter this and things like that? So but I would like to put it into uh, a book at some point um, and uh, just kind of put it all into one volume and, uh, you know, for for people to maybe become more educated on some of these things. Well, I think it'd be absolutely fascinating. I think you have a wealth of information that, uh, you know, you've taken a little bit of time to, to share with the listeners here, but I think there's probably a lot more that uh, you have to tell some great stories uh, that uh, if we had more time we could go into. Do you have any last words or any thoughts that uh, you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, the only thing I'd say is, I, in fact, I met uh, for lunch with a, a young college student the other day, and he was asking you know, what is the FBI looking for? And I know that the FBI is hiring right now, but I, I, I really think that, um, especially with younger people, 
the more diversity that you can build into your resume, the more things you can do, raise your hand for a lot of things, I think only helps you not just to get in the FBI, but whatever you're doing in life and just seek excellence in every one of those, whether it's grades or sports or whatever it might be. The FBI at this point is, 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 has kind of changed from at least when I came in. And there, and there's a lot more expeditionary investigative work overseas and in different places. And they're looking for people that they can essentially drop into any location and, and do their best and kind of wrap up an investigation in a bow and, uh, you know, kind of accomplish the mission. So, um, that's what I mentioned to this, this college student and, and he was heading down that road. But I think for anybody, just do your best that you, you know, that you can in whatever you're doing. And that's the end of the interview. It is, however, not the end of the episode. I forgot to ask Brig for a little bit more information about his new business. So after we got off of Skype, I called him back and got a few more details. So he tells me that the name of his new company is Counterterrorism Consultants International, and that the company is focused on national security matters. They do assessments for corporations, law enforcement organizations, and the military on vulnerabilities to terrorism and security concerns. They also provide workshops on pre-attack flags and indicators and on ideology mindsets, and they also design curriculum for training. So if you're interested in his company, uh, his website is CT hyphen consultants.com. And I will have a uh, link to his website uh, in this episode's show notes. All right, so that's the end of the episode. And as always, back at jerrywilliams.com, I have photos of Brig. I have links to newspaper articles, news magazine articles about the trade of blood diamonds, If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends and family and colleagues. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, I have all of the social media share buttons. So my crime fiction recommendation for this week is The Poor Boy's Game by Philadelphia author Dennis Tafoya. Now this book is about a U.S. Marshal by the name of Franny Mullen, who gets one of her best friends shot during a routine apprehension. And after that, her career is basically over. At the same time that she leaves the Marshal Service, her father, who used to be a vicious enforcer for a corrupt Philadelphia union, escapes from prison, where he's been for a number of years. So the book is about why her father's come back to town and her having to deal with memories of him killing her mother and all of the terrible things that he did when he was an enforcer for the union. The book description says, the poor boy's game is the most propulsive riveting novel yet from crime writer, master Dennis Tafoya. And propulsive is a great word because I'm telling you, almost in every chapter, there is a vicious fight or a shootout. When you talk about action pack, that's this book. Something is happening all the time. So if you like a thriller like that, where there's lots of action, this one's for you. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. The ending 
of who's responsible for the majority of this killing is really surprising. So again, that is The Poor Boy's Game by Dennis Tafoya, and that's T-A-F-O-Y-A. And I will, of course, uh, put a link to uh, that book uh, in the show notes. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetire.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.